Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Welcome to Back from the Borderline. And I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. The idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire, burning it down so that something new can rise from the ashes. You can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power. You just didn't know that. And now you do. On this podcast... I want to provide you with a place to unhook from your overextended life to explore, understand, and integrate the darkest parts of your soul. On this podcast, there's no finish line, no quick fix or cure. There's no outcome, only eternal unfolding. I'd like to welcome any new listeners, if this is your first time hearing an episode, and to returning listeners, welcome back. In March 2023, just last month, I had an amazing opportunity. I was asked by the University of Calgary's Department of Sociology's Graduate Student Caucus to deliver a keynote speech at a virtual event they had, which was called Towards Healing, Systems, Structures, and Movements. The other keynote speaker was Julian Posada, who is a postdoctoral associate and incoming assistant professor of American studies at Harvard. So needless to say, I was full of imposter syndrome when I was asked to speak at this event. What would I say? What value could I add? And 
thankfully I had a few months to put together my speech and I came up with the topic symptoms as saviors, reframing disordered traits as adaptive responses. I put so much work into this keynote address and I truly believe that by sharing my story and the research I put together for this presentation, it can help someone out there. And so that's what I've chosen to use today's episode for, is to share this with you. The idea for this speech came about due to my earlier podcast interview with philosopher Justin Garson. You may have caught that episode if you're a longtime listener. In this episode, which I'll link in the show notes, Justin and I discussed the concept of seeing painful mental health symptoms as natural and adaptive responses, responses we can learn to become aware of and change rather than constantly monitoring our behavior for cues or signs that we are somehow broken or disordered. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my presentation, Symptoms as Saviors. Four years ago, I couldn't have imagined that I'd be sitting down with academics, philosophers, psychiatrists, and psychologists on my own podcast about emotions, individuation, and mental health activism. That's because four years ago, I was suicidal. I was a graduate school dropout making a living doing sex work in Los Angeles after the record deal I was so close to securing for my songwriting fell apart after the man who was managing my music career at the time dropped me like a hot potato after I turned down his sexual advances. So there I was alone in a big city and I wanted to die. Surely something was wrong with me. I knew I needed help, but I had no health insurance. So I caved and called my parents and told them about the thoughts I was having. I told my extremely concerned mother and father that no, I wouldn't actually hurt myself. I had no specific plans, but at the same time, I didn't want to do life anymore. So they agreed to pay for one psychiatrist appointment out of pocket. My parents were both teachers. There was no family money for expensive rehab or extended treatments. Thankfully, I found someone who could see me the following day. So I made the appointment. I've always been obsessive about Googling symptoms of things, so that's what I did. Before seeing the psychiatrist, I'd pored over forums, Reddit threads, and articles trying to find out what was wrong with me. And early in my search, I stumbled across the symptoms of borderline personality disorder. Fear of abandonment, unstable relationships, unclear or shifting self-image, impulsive, self-destructive behaviors, self-harm, suicidal ideation, extreme mood swings, chronic feelings of emptiness, and explosive anger. That was me. I ticked every single box. It didn't feel good to admit it to myself, but at least it was something I could cling to as an answer. The following morning, I found myself sitting in front of my very first psychiatrist, in his freezing cold office, nervously picking at my bleeding cuticles. 
my hands were shaking as I reviewed with him the BPD symptoms that I'd written down in the notes app on my iPhone. After staring at me for a few minutes, the psychiatrist said, Well, it sounds like you could be borderline. You have traits, that's for sure. But trust me, you do not want BPD. It's not curable. There's no medication for it. Plus, you're too high-functioning to have something as serious as borderline personality disorder. And you really don't want a label like that on your medical records. I'll just treat you for bipolar 2. We can manage any chemical imbalances or mood disturbances easily with medication. And if that fails, we'll re-explore the option of BPD as a last resort. After a 15-minute appointment, I left his office with a brand new bipolar 2 diagnosis, prescriptions for citalopram, an antidepressant, Xanax and Buspar for my panic attacks, Lamictal, a mood stabilizer, and a mixture of confusion and fear. What if all these new medications couldn't cure this supposed chemical imbalance in my brain? What if I actually did have BPD? What would that mean? If BPD wasn't caused by a chemical imbalance, what was it caused by? What did this psychiatrist mean when he said I was too high-functioning? I was literally contemplating suicide every 10 minutes and barely left my room. I certainly didn't feel high-functioning. But surely this professional knew what he was talking about, right? So I decided maybe I was overthinking it. I pushed aside my intuitive nudges and concerns and began accepting my new bipolar 2 diagnosis and taking my medications. After months of cycling off and on various medications and struggling with the acceptance of my diagnosis, I was laying in bed one night and decided I wanted to record a video. Not to be shared with anyone else or on social media, but for myself. I wanted to remember my lowest point so that I could reflect on it when my medications had successfully cured this imbalance in my brain. I'm going to play this video for you now. It feels a little scary to me because this four minute video represents one of the lowest and most vulnerable moments in my life. I almost don't even recognize this version of myself anymore. I'm choosing to play the audio of this video for you today because I believe it's important for you to see what it looks like when someone grapples with coming to terms with a mental illness or diagnosis that points to a disorder or imbalance in the brain. At the time I took this video, I knew very little about psychology, the human personality, or the different theories of mental health. This is the experience of so many who take that very brave first step of seeking help from psychiatrists practicing within the medical model of mental health, which perpetuates the belief that mental and emotional issues are related to biological causes and problems within the individual. As a heads up, this video was recorded in my bedroom and I had the TV playing in the background. And so if the audio is low quality and you hear a lot of background noise, I apologize for that. But this is a video I took 
with no intention of anyone ever seeing it or hearing it. I remember when I recorded it, I just wanted to document myself at my lowest point so that I could hopefully look back at that video in the future and see how far I'd come. And little did I know I would have a podcast and be learning so much about these topics. So as I said, please bear with the incredibly poor audio quality. And now we will enter the audio of this video I took on my cell phone when I was at my lowest point. I guess I want to make a little bit of a video diary of my experience going on right now. I just accepted today that I am bipolar. I was diagnosed last year and I didn't want to believe it. I wanted to believe that I just had depression because that was hard enough to accept. But I'm tired of lying about it now. I'm tired of lying to myself. I had some really extreme suicidal thoughts the other day and it just made me realize that I needed to get help. I admitted to my parents that I got diagnosed with bipolar last year and I got given mood stabilizers and I threw them away. I had a full breakdown the other day. I wanted to die. I didn't like want to um, kill myself, but if there was a way that I could have done it and not had any pain to my family, I just wanted it to stop. The sadness um, that you get is bipolar is so hard to under to explain. It's like it hurts. I don't know how else to explain it. Like people that will tell you, just get over it. Like you'll get better, or pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and like you can't. <laughs> and the worst part about it is knowing that it's stupid that you feel that way and that you shouldn't, but you do, and you're trapped in this hellhole. And the other day, I just bent over, and the sadness hurt me. And I, I didn't know how to get away from it. But it's time that more people need to talk about this. And I'm on medication now. Told my family I'm open about it, and I'm going to stop feeling bad about it now. I have a mental illness, you know, and there's nothing wrong with admitting that. And I'm never going to be able to help other people if I don't admit what's wrong with me. So today is the day I'm starting. I'm going to get better. I'm not going to let this rule my life anymore. I'm going to go to therapy. I'm going to stop denying this and... I'm not going to let it ruin my life anymore. I'm ready for this to just be better. I'm ready. Listening to that audio back never gets any easier for me. There is a childlike and helpless quality to my delivery that breaks my heart. I want to reach out and hug this past version of myself. When I recorded that video 
on my cell phone, I believed at my core that I was mentally ill and somehow disordered. I believed that I needed to admit to the world that the symptoms I was experiencing meant that something was wrong with me and the way that my brain worked. I believed I needed to eliminate these symptoms, numb them, remove them, and suppress them. My symptoms were my enemies. They were standing in between me and a life that was worth living, and I hated them for what I believed they'd done to me. But what I know now is that my brain was doing exactly what would be expected, considering what I'd lived through. And what I know now is that our experiences in the early years of our lives are disproportionately powerful in shaping how our brains organize and develop. In 2021, American psychiatrist and senior fellow of the Child Trauma Academy, Dr. Bruce Perry, co-wrote and published a book with Oprah Winfrey called What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing. And as I listened to the audible version of the book, Dr. Perry said something that stuck with me. Most people who are in the process of excavating the reasons they do what they do are met at some point with resistance. You're blaming the past. Your past is not an excuse. And this is true. Your past is not an excuse, but it is an explanation. Offering insight into the questions so many of us ask ourselves. Why do I behave the way I behave? Why do I feel the way I do? For me, there is no doubt that our strengths, vulnerabilities, and unique responses are an expression of what happened to us. Very often, what happened takes years to reveal itself. It takes courage to confront our actions, to peel back the layers of trauma in our lives, and expose the raw truth of our past. But this is where healing begins. The psychiatrist I saw four years ago never asked me what happened to me. If he had, he'd have learned that I'd experienced severe emotional neglect as a child. I would have told him about the explosive, toxic, and dramatic parental mood swings that were a hallmark of my home growing up. I would have explained the anger, resentment, and bitterness I felt for my mother, who always seemed to care more about protecting herself and her relationship with my father than protecting her own child. I would have told him that I was relentlessly bullied by girls in junior high, which made getting up for school every morning feel like a living nightmare. I would have told him that I began shoplifting and sleeping around at a young age, trying to fill the gaping empty hole inside of me with hits of excitement and what I thought was love, but was really just self-sabotage and abuse. I would have told him that starting at the age of 15, I was groomed by attractive older men in their 20s and 30s and fell for their love-bombing and silky words, hook, line, and sinker, because it was the first time I actually felt like someone saw me and wanted me. So I performed the identity they thought they wanted to continue being desirable. 
I would have told him that I'd been sexually assaulted on a picnic table by one of those men when I was 18. I would have told him that when I told my mother about my assault, she stared at me with a sad and faraway look in her eyes and asked me, what do you want me to do? We never discussed the topic again after that day. I would have told my psychiatrist all of this, but he never asked me about my childhood. He never asked me what had happened to me. Instead, he labeled me, medicated me, and sent me on my way after a 15-minute, $500 appointment. After spending the last two years speaking about this on my podcast and receiving hundreds of emails, comments, and voicemails from my listeners, I discovered that this experience is all too common. My listeners felt validated and seen by my story and my experiences, and they felt hope for the first time that they weren't alone. And I felt this hope too. Slowly, I began to shift this podcast's message away from helping people come to terms with their diagnostic labels to questioning the validity of these diagnoses and the medical model of mental illness that rules the systems that provide mental health care to those who are suffering. I began to put everything I had into interviewing and researching the work of professionals with similar questions and concerns. Looking at the psychological suffering of human beings through a purely medical lens has taken center stage for as long as many of us can remember. And at this very moment, millions of people honestly and genuinely believe that they are experiencing signs and symptoms of mental disorders and illnesses because something is chemically wrong with their brains and that these imbalances can be passed down from generation to generation. The inner circles of psychiatry have always been quick to admit that the medical model is just a theory, but unfortunately, this belief is rarely shared with their vulnerable patients. However, more and more, especially in recent years, the biomedical model of mental health has come under some serious fire. Groundbreaking research published in 2022 by psychiatrist Joanna Moncrief and her team at King's College London proved without a shadow of a doubt that what is called the, quote, serotonin hypothesis, the idea that mental illness, predominantly depression, is caused by an imbalance of chemicals in the brain, is nothing more than a misguided theory and marketing ploy, a myth with incredibly dire consequences. Since the release of her systematic review in the Molecular Psychiatry Journal in 2022, this research by Dr. Moncrief and her team took this information to the mainstream, rattling the entire psychiatric establishment. And when old views come crumbling down, new ones emerge. And that's exactly what we are all living right now. As a collective, we're beginning to see and understand that our suffering is not caused by chemical imbalances in our broken brains. As children, our brains are incredibly sensitive. Even seemingly minor occurrences can be seen as devastating realities of abandonment, neglect, and trauma. And these early experiences carve deeply ingrained patterns and become the framework through which we see the world and other people. 
In my interview that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast with philosopher Justin Garson, he proposed viewing our psychological suffering from a design perspective instead of a disorder perspective. Maybe, just maybe, there's nothing wrong with the way your brain is working. Perhaps it's responding exactly as it was designed to. Perhaps it's responding exactly as it believes it needs to, to keep you safe and to help you survive. The definition of savior is one that saves from danger or destruction. And so I began to wonder, what if we viewed our symptoms as saviors? This new paradigm and radical reframe of our psychological suffering encourages us to zoom out. Through this new lens, we can begin to see painful symptoms as natural responses, responses that we can learn to become aware of, understand, move through, and slowly change, rather than constantly monitoring our behavior for cues or signs that we're somehow broken or disordered. This new framework can also help us move forward from the unhelpful cycle of blaming our caregivers for how our lives continue to spiral out of control and instead take a higher evolutionary perspective as to why our parents and caregivers responded and reacted the way they did when we were growing up. What if, as a collective, we could break free from the harmful and unhelpful pattern of pathologizing and labeling human suffering? What if we began to see our symptoms as an adaptation rather than as a sign that we are somehow dysfunctional, disordered, or broken. I believe this would dramatically change the way we view and relate to ourselves and others. It would completely change the hope we have for our future and increase our self-image and levels of resiliency. It would allow us to accept symptoms as part of ourselves that arise to alert us that we're living out of alignment with our highest truth. So, our symptoms turn up the levels of discomfort in our inner landscape in hopes that we'll heed their warning and accept their help, in hopes that we'll see them as saviors, instead of symptomology of disease, disorder, or dysfunction. In July 2022, I had the opportunity to interview New York Times bestselling author and professor of the clinical psychology program at Teachers College, Columbia University, Dr. Lisa Miller. Lisa explained to me that as a clinical psychologist and scientist, she was trained to see depression and other mental health symptoms through the lens of the medical model as signs of disease. Much like cancer or diabetes, Lisa was encouraged to see mental health disorder diagnoses as diseases with symptoms like despair, suicidal ideation, and isolation. As she began to see and work with highly traumatized patients in psychiatric hospitals and move through cycles of psychological suffering and grief in her own life, Lisa told me that she began to have questions. She simply did not believe that the medical model accurately depicted the road we were traveling as humans. For Lisa, the medical model of mental health with its view of chemical imbalances and disorders didn't explain the depths of human suffering that follows the loss of a spouse, 
a miscarriage, trauma, sexual abuse and assault, midlife crisis, or what she described as chapter breaks that seemed core to who we are as humans. She couldn't accept that these symptoms were reflective of illness or disease. In our interview, Lisa said something that will never leave me. She said that mental health symptoms can be seen as a knock at the door, an invitation to do the most important work of our lives, a call from something deep within ourselves asking us to view this inner journey as more than a disease or disorder, but as an opening of a door on a path of becoming, a spiritual path. Lisa told me she wished someone could have explained to her younger self that the mental health symptoms and depression she would soon struggle with so deeply would likely not be psychopathology, nor would it reflect a medical illness but rather, these feelings would be situational and most importantly, temporary. She wished someone had told her that, like roughly two-thirds of young adults, psychological and emotional suffering will be part of a life-changing existential struggle to figure out the nature of life itself, that the developmental depression coming her way was simply part of laying the foundation for the rest of her life, and it can be anticipated, mitigated, and leveraged into a more fulfilling engagement with life. The Appalachian Trail is a 2,000-mile-long public footpath that traverses the scenic and culturally resonant lands of the Appalachian Mountains. Many of my ancestors are from this area. And in our interview, Lisa told me about the incredible volunteers along the Appalachian Trail who offer food, help, and guidance to those who choose to undertake this incredibly challenging hike. These volunteers on the Appalachian Trail are often referred to as trail angels. Lisa said that she began to view her own symptoms, psychological suffering, and synchronicities in her life as her trail angels. Her symptoms, now seen as inner trail angels, brought wisdom and guidance when she needed it most as she continued her path towards psychological integration and inner growth. After we wrapped our interview and stopped the recording, Lisa Miller, this woman who'd never met me before but had patiently listened to the story of my own suffering for the past two hours, told me how proud she was of me and the work I was doing after all that I'd overcome in my life. I collapsed into tears immediately. It had been a long time since I'd felt that deeply seen and intuitively felt by another person. Over the next few months, I began to take Lisa's words to heart. Up until that point, I'd always felt incredibly put off and cringed out by anything religious or spiritual. Growing up in the Midwestern United States, I didn't resonate with what I perceived as the exclusionary and dogmatic nature of the fundamentalist religious beliefs I was exposed to. But after my conversation with Lisa, I felt myself begin to reconnect with a deep yearning for a sense of individual and grounded spirituality and meaning in my life. What if, as Lisa said, I began to connect with these feelings inside of me, and saw them as knocks at the door, 
as my spiritual saviors and innermost trail angels, what message might they have for me if I dared to ask? Through working with my symptoms as saviors, I discovered that they wanted me to know that I was out of alignment with the deeper and more spiritual nature of life. I was disconnected from my purpose. I wasn't following the natural trajectory of growth that was meant for me, and my body and mind wanted me to know this. My body and mind were giving me all the signs they could. As I began to listen to my innermost wisdom and heed its guidance, I began to make changes in my life in every category. Slowly, I began to see my true self emerge. Through this more stable and grounded version of myself, I shared my journey with my podcast listeners. I discussed the idea of spiritual starvation, and in these episodes I wondered how, as a collective, we'd gotten to a place where the soul and spirit of a person are not acknowledged at all by the systems that dictate how mental and emotional health are treated and cared for. These realizations, along with the deep study of depth psychology and integral spirituality, helped me begin to identify the conflicts between my own soul and personality and begin to bring them into harmony. And as my listeners followed along with my journey, the emails and voicemails began to pour in. Many felt as though they'd found the missing piece in their own recovery journeys too. As I spoke to more people, continued my research, it became clearer than ever that the soul and spirit don't really exist at all in our modern society, and they aren't really considered in mainstream approaches to mental health care and treatment either. So instead, we throw ourselves inward. This leads to us being labeled as disordered, dysfunctional, or treatment resistant. Surely this is what Nietzsche meant when he said, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. No wonder we're depressed and feel as though life has no meaning. Modern society has sucked the meaning out of existence, the spirit out of existence. We need to help the most vulnerable among us understand that they are not suffering the emptiness within themselves, but that they are suffering from the emptiness of society. This is a collective, not an individual problem. We're spiritually starved, spiritually homeless, broken and longing for understanding. For a place to talk about the things we're too scared to bring up to people who, at best, may not understand and at worst, label us as crazy or hysterical, lock us up, sedate us, and never once think that our suffering might make perfect and logical sense given what had happened to us, what we had been through. Spiritual starvation feels like longing. It's an ache and yearning for something that you can't quite put your finger on, something you can't see or touch, a feeling of wanting to go home but not really knowing where home is, leaving you with big feelings of deep, and hollow emptiness, something we refer to on this podcast as the big empty. Part of the reason we seek therapy in the first place is because religion has collapsed. People feel a deep longing for a different kind of safe container for their human experience. 
We come into this world to win battles, gain strength against those who try to control us, and advance to a stage of maturity and initiation where we can pass through life pursuing our calling, calmly guided by our highest self. But for most of us, the hardest battles we will fight are in our own childhood homes, where we must free ourselves from the dominion and control of those who claim to love us most. For most of us, home felt like a spiritual prison where the controlling, dominating, and sometimes traumatizing beliefs and behaviors of our caregivers, whether these caregivers were conscious of what they were doing or not, cramped the nature and development of our childhood spirits. These spiritual prisons of our childhood stop the feelings of freedom we are meant to feel as children. These dysfunctional environments, devoid of spiritual and emotional nourishment, cultivate unhappiness, emptiness, and dis-ease, which leads to mental, nervous system, and physical disorders, which is why we live in such a sick and empty society today. This leads to many of us wanting to die, especially in adolescence and early adulthood. But what we don't know in these stages of our lives is that the death we are longing for is a metaphorical and spiritual death, not a literal death. The problem is is that no one's explained this to us, so this death urge remains. This deep depression This dark night of the soul is what it feels like when our spirits tell us that it's time for our childhood mentality to die so that we can become adults, that it's time for spiritual transformation, for initiation and integration, that it's time to clean up, grow up, and awaken to higher truths. Mainstream mental health does not address this death urge, but instead pathologizes, labels it, and suppresses it, this does not mean it goes away. It might become less noticeable, but it will continue to simmer under the surface until it is properly addressed. It will continue to knock at our door until we answer. The real problem with the disorder model is that it places the cause within the individual, when in fact, Emotion dysregulation difficulties more often arise out of dysfunctional family and intimate systems like families, marriages, intimate partnerships, and work environments. When you visit your traditional, average, modern psychiatrist in Western society, they're unlikely to tell you that your suffering or symptoms are a collective or a systemic problem. They're going to tell you it's a personal problem. Why? because they're not trained to look at the collective or at spiritual ecology in general. They're not trained to examine how we relate to one another as a collective whole. Many existing therapeutic modalities like CBT and DBT have some dark and disturbing histories. They can be used by the medical model of mental health to get patients under control and respond in more socially acceptable ways. The goal is to get patients to conform while the systemic causes of the distress and behaviors go unaddressed. I want to make it clear that I don't think that CBT and DBT are completely harmful. 
but I think it's important to understand some of the histories and systemic issues behind some of these treatment modalities. Disorder labels like BPD reinforce harmful prejudices. When someone is slapped with a BPD label, it can lead to strengthening a person's deepest insecurities and further marginalize the most vulnerable among us. Issues and struggles with mental health are very real. There will always be a need for therapists and healers. Psychiatry, however, is only recognized as a branch of medicine because it labels mental disorders as medical problems. But what we're beginning to wake up to as a society is that medicalizing human suffering and human emotion does not contribute to better health outcomes. The clock is ticking, and we're closer to questioning psychiatry as a field of medicine. Medicine seeks to treat diseases. Mental disorders are not diseases. The most supportive thing we can do for individuals with mental disorder labels like BPD is to help them understand that they are not disordered. All the way up until the 1970s, homosexuality was classified as a mental disorder. According to Bingham and Banner, if candidate definitions of mental disorder are unable to exclude homosexuality, it might perhaps be preferable not to attempt a definition at all. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. The fact that being gay just 50 years ago was seen as a mental illness should urge us as a society to question how disorder and dysfunction labels are constructed and the quote-unquote science used to create these diagnostic categories. Haile Selassie, one of the most famous leaders in Ethiopian history, once said, It's only when people strike an even balance between scientific progress and spiritual and moral advancement that it can be said to possess a wholly perfect and complete personality and not a lopsided one. It's not as simple as love and light, although New Age spirituality Instagram carousels may try to convince us otherwise. It's about cultivating the ability to stop lying to ourselves to begin to see the reality of the darkness within so that we're able to see ourselves and others in factual and not delusional ways. Take, for example, the story of Pinocchio. As always, we can find deeper truths and wisdom in myths and fairy tales. Pinocchio isn't a real boy in the beginning of the story. He's a puppet of the ego. 
He doesn't see who he truly is. He doesn't listen to his inner wisdom. So due to this, he lies to himself and others. He is living out of integrity. But once he develops the ability to really see through learning and honesty, through this spiritual initiation, he discovers he is a real boy. There's value in the individualized and person-centered care of the medical model. But, like Haile Selassie says, we need balance. We've shifted too far to the extreme, using phrases like disease, disorder, cure, and remission when it comes to our mental and spiritual well-being. I believe that many operating within the medical model of mental health, including most psychiatrists, are decent human beings with truly humanitarian principles, hoping and striving to help reduce human suffering. Their motives are generally good, but the problem is, is that motive is not enough. Their wisdom is poor, and they have little capacity to include the human soul and collective unconscious into their worldview. I don't want to say that psychiatry is all bad or insinuate a radical approach of burning it all down. It's said that destruction is useless unless you can build something better in its place. I believe we have a decent enough foundation, but we need to add more elements and find a better balance. Knowing something is a band-aid is different than relying on it to be a fix or a cure to much, much deeper issues. Knowing what the problem actually is helps us come up with more sustainable short and long-term solutions that actually get to the root cause of human suffering. If we can begin to see symptoms as a byproduct of oppressive social conditions and as part of ourselves that are trying to help us regain balance and sovereignty as free individuals, we can then become truly innovative and start thinking outside of these copy and paste mental existences that we've been raised in. Fixating on the curing or remission of mental health disorders will never address the root of the problem. Our symptoms are not the cause of our pain. They're the final manifestations of deeper systemic social and societal problems. No pain we experience can be reduced to an innate individual problem, a biological defect or genetic abnormality. We are complex, diverse beings that are trying to make sense of ourselves within these dysfunctional and often traumatizing societies that we've been forced to adapt to. When we're hurting, our tendency is to either blame ourselves or other people. This is how the system works. Our sickness is more profitable than our health. There's a saying that goes, a patient cured is a customer lost. It's sad to say it, but capitalism does need us just well enough to keep providing to the system, but they don't want us too well so that we're actually free of these systems. I believe that collectively we're waking up. We're starting to really understand what's truly making us sick and causing dis-ease and disorder and dysfunction. We know 
that the problems are systemic. They can't be located inside of individuals. We should be using the tools we have now to cope in the short term while at the same time making big changes within these existing systems so that we can start healing collectively in the long term. The problem, as always, is not with the people, it's the systems. Mental health providers are operating within these systems and they're being forced to see as many people as possible to please insurance companies to create better outcomes in the form of numbers and data. As Paracelsus once said, the wise physician attends five, not 15 patients in a day, an ideal that's nearly impossible to comprehend for the average modern-day psychiatrist or therapist. The last thing drug companies want is to see the evolution of psychiatry. It's not great business for them if psychiatry takes the psychological injuries of abuse and neglect as the largest cause of emotional and behavioral problems. In 2022, the ICD-10, the diagnostic manual used in Europe, nearly removed the BPD and EUPD diagnostic labels entirely, but this process was halted at the protest of American insurance companies. The dawn of a new and better art of healing is upon us. I truly believe this. More and more, we're seeing people wake up to the importance of cleaner diets, spirituality, human connection, and community when it comes to holistic, mental, physical, and emotional well-being. If we truly want to liberate ourselves when it comes to mental health, it needs to be a collective experience and effort. Being open and honest and accepting of ourselves, loving ourselves, practicing self-care, these things can only do so much when the people who are being labeled with mental illnesses, disorders, or other neurodivergencies are viewed as a structurally disenfranchised class. Looking at symptoms as saviors would completely flip and disrupt this toxic narrative. We are in distress because we live under oppressive systems that force us to earn the right to live. These same systems exploit us for profit and try to sever our connection to communities, to land, to nature, the things we need to be healthy, our basic needs. Of course, it's no surprise that these oppressive symptoms cause poor health outcomes mentally and physically. Bringing the conflicts between our soul and personality into harmony cannot occur while we continue to view psychological and emotional suffering through the lens of the medical model of mental health. Healing can't just be physical. It needs to treat the body, the mind, and the spirit. This inner harmony and balance is essential for emotional well-being. Sufism is a form of Islamic mysticism that emphasizes introspection, looking within. In his book, The Law of Light, Danish author and mystic Lars Mule writes that the Sufis describe a human being midway through life as a cup that needs to be emptied. The Sufis believe that as human beings, we are born as a cup full of the purest wisdom, of beautiful silence, 
beingness. Very quickly though, all of this is replaced by noise and lessons until halfway through life, we come to realize that the lessons have become lies and the noise is unendurable. Then, as the Sufis say, it's time to empty the cup. I believe we are well and truly at a point where the noise and lessons of the medical model of mental health and psychiatry have become unendurable. It's high time that we follow the wisdom of the Sufis and empty the metaphorical cup. As a society, we've fundamentally misunderstood the purpose of feelings and emotions. But by viewing our symptoms as saviors, we can begin to acknowledge their existence as alerts when we are straying from our highest truth and integrity and the deepest yearnings of our soul. I dream of a future where our symptoms are seen as rational, sane, and adaptive responses to an insane and unhealthy society and collective. I dream of a future where we don't seek to cure, control, or suppress disorders or dysfunctions, but one where we view inner awakening and healing as a slow process of becoming, unknowing, and unfolding where inner change and healing happen slowly, inch by inch. I dream of a future where we view our symptoms as saviors. That's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for being with me and witnessing my story. It's not easy to share some of these things, and some of them I've never even shared on the podcast before, but I felt like it was a good time for me to take it back to basics and really explain what I had gone through and what led me to this point and why I hold some of the beliefs that I do about where we're at as a collective when it comes to the way we view our mental health, our spiritual an emotional and psychological well-being. I think we can all collectively agree that what we're doing right now isn't working. If it were, we would be seeing better and better outcomes, but instead, we're seeing exactly the opposite. I'm not saying I have all the answers. As long-term listeners of the podcast know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a therapist. I went to about a year of my graduate program to become a marriage and family therapist and ended up dropping out because I was just so disillusioned with all of the labels and stigma that I experienced even from some of my own instructors and the people that were taking part in the course with me. It just seemed like we have gone so far astray. And after interviewing so many professionals and therapists on this very podcast who as soon as the microphone is off, we have open and frank discussions about how the medical model of mental health is just not working, I knew that I wanted part of my life's mission and a huge part of the work that I want this podcast to perform in the collective is to help guide us into a new and more balanced view, a new approach where we embrace our symptoms as saviors. 
So again, thank you for being here with me today on this episode. If it made an impact on you, and if you think it could help someone else, please share this episode. The only way that we are going to usher in a new era to help people understand is by educating in a calm way through lived experience with heart. So if you're someone who identifies with a disorder or dysfunction label and maybe you want your family to understand where you're coming from or your partner, maybe share this episode with them. Sit down and listen to it together and have a discussion. We have to have open, honest, and vulnerable conversations with each other, especially about really difficult and sometimes scary topics. I want to announce too that I've recently started a Substack. So if you'd like to dive into more of my writing and become more deeply involved in the community, you can subscribe to my Substack and I will link that in the show notes. I'll also link the resources that I mentioned and both my episodes with Lisa Miller and Justin Garson in case you would like to listen to those conversations where we talk about the disorder versus the design model and also Lisa Miller's episode where we discuss the hidden spiritual gifts inside psychological suffering and what we call mental illness. If you'd like to join the conversation on Instagram, you can also follow me there at Back From The Borderline. I share memes and quotes and other things that resonate with people. And I'd like to say that my Instagram is a visual version of this podcast and my podcast is an audio version of my Instagram. So I'd love to see you there. Now, for those of you who'd like to get even deeper into the Back From The Borderline community, I have good news for you. I have a second podcast, My Stupid Walk for My Stupid Mental Health, which is available to my premium submarines. And if you'd like to unlock this additional private podcast, which I release every single week along with this main feed episode, as well as over 110 hours and counting of bonus content, as well as my monthly newsletter, you can do that by signing up to become a premium submarine. You can sign up through the link in the episode description of this podcast or via my website at backfromtheborderline.com. What you'll hear next is a preview of this week's bonus episode, and it will fade out after a few minutes. And if you'd like to unlock the full episode, you can become a premium submarine at the link in my bio or on my website. But for now... Enjoy this week's free preview of my stupid walk for my stupid mental health. Welcome back everyone to my stupid walk for my stupid mental health. You may notice that the audio sounds real crispy and nice today, which means I'm not coming at you from my stupid walk, but this doesn't mean you can't get away with not taking your stupid walk. So what I want you to do is make sure that you are walking when you're listening to this. I promise you I went on my walk today, so I did not skip it, but I have some important 
premium submarine updates that I'm going to be giving to you at the end of this episode. So I decided today I'm just going to jump straight into the premium submarine emails and voicemails and you can enjoy me responding and reflecting to them as you take your stupid walk. Next week, we will be back to our regular scheduled programming where I will be taking my little walk with Cody, reflecting on a few things from the week, but because I have some significant news and updates for all of you, I decided to switch it up this week for now. So don't get too comfy with this format, but this is what's happening today. Our first voicemail is from Maul. Let's hear what he has to say. Hey, Molly. This is Maul. I'm 26 years old and I live in Michigan. I came across your podcast about three months ago and immediately became a proud submarine because you spoke to everything that I've been feeling and honestly thought that I was alone in feeling. So thank you so much for what you do. It has changed my life for sure. I'm currently in my first relationship right now and given like my fear of abandonment, paranoia, and my traumas, and like these feelings of unworthiness. Um, it's been tough. I find myself trying to be this like perfect boyfriend who could never get cheated on and like comparing myself to all of the other men that are in her life, like, you know, you know, her past exes or like her coworkers or, you know, some, you know, whoever, right? Uh, and it, it has really bogged me down a lot. Um, also because like, I don't bring a lot of this stuff to her because in the times that I do, it really turns into a trauma dump and that makes things worse too. So I don't know. It's just been really tough. Like the peaks and valleys of a relationship are really tough to deal with for me because I want to just sacrifice the good if it means that I can avoid the bad. Um, so weathering the storm is tough. If this is something that you can speak to, that'd be great. Uh, nonetheless, I love your podcast and thank you so much. Hi, Maul. Thank you so much for this voicemail. People call me Malls and Mall too, so it's Malls talking to Mall. Welcome to the submarine family and thank you for your kind words about the podcast. You know, feeling seen and heard is really powerful and feeling like you're not crazy and alone in some of these feelings is incredibly validating. So I'm glad that the podcast and then I'm sure the words of the other premium submarines have helped you too. So wow, you're in your first relationship. I just want to let you know that my first thought was like, of course, this is tough, right? When you're in your first relationship, it's like, learning to ride a bike, right? You're falling over or learning to walk, learning a new language. Like it's going to be a struggle. And especially if you deal with abandonment issues, like you said, and, you know, paranoia and emotion dysregulation, which if you listen to this podcast, clearly those are things that you struggle with. So I just want to say how important it is to give yourself grace and understanding and cut yourself a break, right? If you are learning a brand new skill, you wouldn't expect yourself to be perfect at it right off the bat. And you literally said you struggle trying to be the perfect boyfriend who never gets cheated on. I know this is the most tacky cliche thing ever, but perfect doesn't exist. And so I ask you to reflect on what does a perfect boyfriend look like to you? 
And what does a perfect boyfriend maybe look like to your partner? Have you had a discussion with this person that you're dating about what her needs are in the relationship and what your needs are in the relationship? What are some things that make her feel really seen and heard and validated by her partner? And you can share some of these things too. I think that, you know, when we struggle with paranoia and extreme jealousy and comparison, which is something I have struggled with so much. So Zaz is an incredible videographer and he used to um, do different videos for various brands and musicians. And he even worked with like one of the pussycat dolls when she did her solo career. And I just remember seeing all of these videos where Zaz could so incredibly capture these like free and beautiful women. And I remember feeling so incredibly jealous whenever that would happen. And in the past, I've also like been obsessive about like monitoring the person that I'm with, their social media presence, what photos they're liking. And I think that when we get preoccupied with these kinds of things this is when the paranoia sets in when we start projecting our own expectations of what a quote-unquote perfect partner looks like and does onto this person that we're with and also not cutting ourselves enough slack right trying to put on this perfect boyfriend mask is likely causing you a lot of anxiety it sure sounds like it otherwise you wouldn't be coming to me with this voicemail and you said that you don't really bring this stuff up to her because you're trying so hard to be this perfect boyfriend but then when it all comes out it comes out like a trauma dump right and so the thing is when we try so hard to keep things inside inevitably shit's gonna explode and maybe that's what's happened to you already and I think that Approaching this person that you're dating with your real feelings, like opening up and saying, I struggle with comparing myself to the other people that you've been with. I struggle with paranoia, abandonment issues, and unworthiness. I struggle with putting space between my feelings and my reactions. And I really like you. And I want you to know that I'm working on this about myself. And maybe ask her, What's something that she really wants to work on about herself and ask her if she's open to having a dialogue about these things. I can't speak for this person that you're dating, but I know that whenever a a man in my past has opened up to me like that, it is so incredibly nice. And I've dated a couple of really nice guys in the past too that have said to me like, oh, I was scared to open up to you because I didn't want you to think that I didn't have my shit together. And I think a lot of people struggle with this. I can't speak for everyone, but I know that I've had a lot of men in my life say this. And I've heard reports from friends of mine who are dating men too that have heard this as well. But in reality, you have women on the other side like dying for their partner to open up to them and wonder what all this weird, jealous, paranoid behavior is When in reality, the person that you're dating would probably much prefer if you would just open up and say that you're scared and nervous and you're terrified of being abandoned and not measuring up to other people in her life and that you know that that's not logical. But if you seem anxious or 
you have certain reactions that that might be what's underneath it and that it's not her. It's something that you're trying to work on. And I have a really strong feeling that if this person really loves you and likes you a lot, I don't think that you said how long that you'd been in the relationship for, they will be open to that and appreciate you for that. And if they don't, then this might not be the best fit relationship for you because you should be able to openly speak about what you're going through. I highly recommend you check out my episode that I did a few weeks back about how to find out what your needs are and then also how to communicate your needs to someone else. I'm not sure if you've made your way through all the content yet. You said you were a relatively new submarine, but check out that episode because I think you'll find a lot of value in it. So thanks for that voicemail, Mall, and welcome again to the Premium Submarine family. And send me another voicemail in the future. Let me know how it goes. I'd love to hear the update if you have the conversation with your partner. And I just am still waiting for some of you to resubmit another voicemail, some of you submarines, and give me an update. So Mall, please update us if you have the conversation and let us know how it goes. Good luck. Our next voicemail is from Kelly. Hi, Molly. It's Kelly. I'm a premium submarine from the East Coast of the United States. And I am calling today with um, a question to pick your brain on. It's not necessarily how to stop splitting on my partner, but how to manage the discomfort when I know that I'm splitting. So usually I am pretty aware that I am splitting on my partner. Um, We've been together for a few decades. We have children. We have a family. He's a great person and a wonderful man. He tries to support me the best that he can. I am more newly diagnosed with BPD within the past six months. But for the past few years, I've been in the mental health system, like through a couple different diagnoses after having like what I think was a breakdown a couple of years ago where everything in my life, in my psyche just came to a head. And I'm very grateful for it, even if it's been an extremely painful thing that I'm still sorting through. Um, when I split on my husband, it's not necessarily so much in behavior. I'm a really big people pleaser, so it doesn't necessarily come out like that, but it's more like I either think he's like wonderful and great, or I think he's trying to trick me and is like mistreating me, but I'm not quite like informed enough to know how I know when I'm doing this for the most part, and it is just so uncomfortable, but I can't quite bring myself out of it until it runs its course. So I just didn't know if you had any tips on that. I really love your podcast and you, and I'm so grateful. Thank you so much. Oh, hi, Kelly. Thank you for this voicemail. I'm so happy you are a premium submarine. Okay. There's lots to unpack here. And wow. I think every single one of us can identify with that feeling where it's like a car crash, where it's like, you know, you're splitting, you know, you're being irrational, but it's like, you can't put the genie back in the bottle as they say, right? It's like, you're watching yourself from outside and you like, can't stop. 
And sometimes for me, like when I would have like a splitting moment, I would know I was doing it, but I would feel too stupid to stop and say, I'm splitting, never mind, this was stupid. So I'd feel like I would have to double down and like rationalize my behavior. And I am really convinced that many of us that struggle with emotional dysregulation are highly intelligent, intuitive, and creative people. And so the shadow side of that means that we can tell ourselves really good fucking stories where we can convince ourselves of anything and sometimes even our friends like for example I would used to rant to my friends about shit that my partners would do but in reality it was just like the story in my mind that I created and I really believed when in reality if my friends would have probably spoken to my partner then spoken to me and seen the actual objective reality of what was going on they probably would have been like Mm, are you sure it's this serious? So it's really difficult and I relate so much to everything that you shared. And I have a really deep feeling that many, many people listening, all the rest of the submarines are nodding their head vigorously as well. I want to start with a really positive thing. There's lots of positive things here, but the fact that you know that you're splitting, just like I told Ball, give yourself some grace here. Think of how far you've come. You said that you had what you kind of deemed a breakdown a while back. You dealt with hospitalization, bouncing around the system, getting a few different labels. And I'm sure that there was a time when you were purely unconscious of your behavior. I know that was definitely a time, a long phase in my life where that was the case for me. And those are the worst times. So the very fact that you know that you're splitting and you are trying to figure out how to kind of interrupt that cycle, I really want you to give yourself grace. But I also want to acknowledge how in my own recovery journey, and I've spoken about this before, sometimes when you become actually aware of your behaviors, it can be a different kind of pain to the pain that you felt when you were unconscious of everything. Because when we were unconscious of it, we were in our worst times, rock bottom moment, spiraling, and usually would blame all of our suffering on other people, places, and things, right? We couldn't be the problem. But then once we start our recovery journey and we start having the realizations that you're having now, which is like, I know better. I should know better. Why do I keep doing this and how do I stop it? This is like phase two of recovery where it's a different kind of pain where it's like, you know what you're doing, but it's almost like the monster takes over and you can't stop. And it's really, really painful. And I don't think that's talked about enough. I love that you said that after you had a breakdown that you're actually grateful for it because you said, and I quote that like things in your psyche came to a head. And it's interesting that I'm playing this voicemail of yours on the episode that I shared my speech about symptoms as saviors because it sounds like you are naturally viewing your symptoms as saviors like you understood and recognized that there was a bunch of unprocessed shit in your psyche that needed to come out for analysis and integration and processing and all of those good things you also said that you're a people pleaser right so it's not like you're splitting on your husband maybe in these explosive, rageful ways, but it's more like 
that he does something and then you're spinning out and you're thinking about it and creating stories and ruminating. And then if you're anything like I did, cause I struggle with the same kind of thing, you think about it, think about it, think about it. And then you maybe approach your partner with these wild delusional conclusions you've come up with. And then maybe it starts a fight and your partner is going like, what the fuck? Like, that's not how I interpreted this situation at all. Like, and then they start feeling like they're walking on eggshells around us, right? That's what happened with Zaz. So I have some suggestions for you that have helped me, and I think that they might help you too. Number one, start getting or trying to get to the bottom of these core beliefs you have about yourself that lead to these splitting behaviors. Because you said that you either think he's wonderful, your partner or your husband, or that he's trying to trick or mistreat you in some way. Something that's helped me is the concept of giving people the benefit of the doubt. You said you've been with this man for decades. You have children together Clearly this person is supportive and loving and you're with him for a reason. So oftentimes when we're splitting, we're jumping straight to thinking someone's like an asshole or they're trying to trick us or they're treating us like crap. And so trying to focus on giving your partner the benefit of the doubt and reminding yourself in these moments, like he loves me. Am I creating a story in my mind? What is the objective reality of what's going on? There are certain DBT skills that I do like, and one of them is opposite action. And I try to use that quite a bit. And essentially, opposite action, the DBT skill is very self-explanatory. Basically, what you normally do, do the opposite of that. So if you start getting activated and starting thinking about your husband mistreating you or tricking you and trying to analyze his behaviors and things that he says, what do you normally do? Spin out and ruminate and think he's awful. Do the opposite action. Say, I'm not going to take this any further in your mind, right? And I'm going to do the opposite of what I normally do, which is focus on giving my husband the benefit of the doubt focusing on the fact that he loves me and I'm going to do the opposite. Try to think like Ray Dalio. Ray Dalio is a famous hedge fund manager and he wrote a book called Principles and he talks about this concept that Zaz and I discuss all the time. And he essentially says that after being in business and in the finance world for decades now, he said that there are certain patterns that repeat it's like he doesn't learn anything new now he's seen it all so when he sees something that's happened many times before in the history of finance he always says oh it's another one of those it's just one of those he doesn't personalize it and we can use this in our mental health recovery journeys too so Kelly, for example, when you start getting activated, you start reading into what your husband says and you know that you're going down the splitting spiral, say, oh, this is another one of those. I'm not doing this again. I'm going to choose to do opposite action. Now, this is all easier said than done. And this is why in mental health, there's often like crisis planning. And usually you only hear about this when it comes to like extreme measures, like 
suicidal ideation, for example, when I interviewed um, Catherine Humanek a long while back on my podcast, when we talked about chronic suicidal ideation, she talked about how important it is to have like a crisis pack. So when you start to have suicidal thoughts, you can go to this crisis pack and like do these self-soothing skills and you make a plan beforehand about what you're going to do. So that all you need to do when you, if you start having those thoughts is go do your plan. So obviously you're not struggling with suicidal ideation right now, but I feel like we can have a splitting crisis plan too. So here are a few things that have worked for me. Number one, writing yourself a letter to keep in the notes on your iPhone or whatever phone you use when you are in an emotionally balanced state about your partner is a genius idea that always comes in handy. So Whenever your partner does or says something nice to you, start taking tally of it in your iPhone notes and write it down. Like, so if your partner says something particularly kind, if you had a moment where you looked at them and you just thought, I love this person because they did X, Y, Z, get your phone out and write it down. Normally, I would say don't keep... All right, everyone, that is it for this week's preview of my stupid walk for my stupid mental health. To unlock full episodes of Back from the Borderline, just like what you've heard now, you will need to sign up to become a premium submarine. As I mentioned before, you can find the link to do so in the description of this episode or by visiting my website at backfromtheborderline.com. When you become a premium submarine, you will unlock over 110 hours of bonus content, gain access to full episodes each week with my stupid walk for my stupid mental health, and receive the monthly sonar system mailer via my substack. So if that sounds interesting to you, why not join the premium submarine family today? You'll also have the ability to send me emails and voicemails and the questions that are submitted by premium subscribers get answered and prioritized in a much more efficient and urgent way on these episodes. So I'd love to welcome you into the submarine family. That's all I have for you today. Thank you so much for being here with me. Remember, your symptoms are your saviors. I love each and every one of you so, so much. And I'll see you right back here next Tuesday. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon book list recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.